3: And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? I am a revolutionary. This is about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately... Our people's future resides on what we do
2: outside of the White House. African descent fairly, America failed. She put
4: Our Common Ground with Janice Graham.
1: Our Common Ground. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground. A higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas.
3: I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you.
1: Talk Talk That Matters. matters. Transforming truth truth to power. power. One One broadcast broadcast at a time. time.
3: Saturday, 10 p.m. Eastern Time, from the Our Common Ground Studios, live.
4: And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. My fellow Americans. I'm about to sign into law the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I want to take this occasion to talk to you about what that law means to every American. The unending search for justice within our own borders. We believe that all men are created equal, yet many are denied equal treatment. We believe that all men have certain unalienable rights, yet many Americans do not enjoy those rights. We believe that all men are entitled to the blessings of liberty, yet millions are being deprived of those blessings, not because of their own failures, but because of the color of their skin. The reasons are deeply embedded in history and tradition and the nature of man. We can understand without rancor or hatred how this all happened, but it cannot continue. Our Constitution, the foundation of our republic, forbids it, the principles of our freedom Forbid it. Morality forbids it. And the law I will sign tonight forbids it.
3: Tonight at our common ground housing opportunity housing discrimination and the housing crisis. Our guest, James H. Perry, a national voice and leading advocate for housing and fair housing issues in America. He is the executive director of the Greater New Orleans Fair Housing Action Center. He founded the Gulf Coast Fair Housing Center. Center in Mississippi when he was only 26 years old. He is no stranger to Our Common Ground and has been an Our Common Ground voice for more than six years. We'll be talking Housing America at Our Common Ground with James Perry. Stay tuned. And thank you for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground. We hope you're getting your seats. What a wonderful, wonderful spring Saturday evening to be able to top it off with Marvin Gaye and the historic words of President Lyndon Baines Johnson in the signing of the Civil Rights Act. And we hope that you are well and that you are Everywhere you are, enjoying some spring weather. We de-winterized here in New England last week, and we have entered some more wintry weather, but we are hoping that as the sun shines, uh, the temperature will catch up. Hope you are well, and thank you very much uh, for joining us tonight. As in our introduction, uh, we are being joined tonight looking at the Civil Rights Movement, one feature, the Fair Housing Act, 45 years later. For those of you who do not know, each April is declared by our president, Fair Housing Month, and we want to look at the new face of housing opportunity and housing discrimination and how that is reflected in the economics of housing and the housing landscape in America, both housing uh, working-class people and poor people. Our guest tonight is James Perry. He's the Executive Director of the Greater New Orleans Fair Housing Act Center, and he is a housing voice. Um, An expert across this country. He was the founder of the Gulf Coast Fair Housing Center in Mississippi, and he led the Greater New Orleans Fair Housing Action Center through two of America's greatest disasters, Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane Rita. Under his leadership, the Greater New Orleans Fair Housing Action Center favorably settled and historic class action lawsuit resulting in compensation of more than five hundred million dollars for Katrina victims, James Perry has testified before Congress eight times, and the and he was a candidate in two thousand and ten for New Orleans mayoral election, and he is no stranger. To our common ground and we are welcoming him one more time here. He serves on the Board of Directors of the National Fair Housing Alliance and we'll talk about that organization, the National Low Income Housing Co- Coalition, the Gulf Coast Fair Housing Center and chairs the Louisiana Housing Alliance Board of Directors. He holds a bachelor's degree in political science from the University of New Orleans and a juris doctorate from Loyola University School of Law. For those of you who are not familiar, the Greater New Orleans Fair Housing Action Center is a private nonprofit civil rights organization established in the summer of nineteen ninety five to eradicate housing discrimination throughout the greater new orleans area and we are just so very pleased to have james perry come back to us before he joins us i want to make some notes we've had a real tough time um in america this week um and uh the times seem very complex and complicated coming out of the white house and uh if in case he is listening, we want to remind the president uh, that he does not get extra credits or extra points for good faith effort. He has got to make efforts to do more, to reflect in a more intensive way the base that supports him. Um, so, um, you know, we're not asking this president to be a a martyr. Uh, a martyr is a dumbass. Uh, we need heroes, and in my estimation, heroes are those people who are willing to die for a cause, but they are more willing to live for a cause. I was. Thinking during the Yom Kippur season, and I don't know. I pay a lot of attention to rituals of all kinds, and Yom Kippur is uh, one of the most sacred uh, religious uh, holidays of the Jewish people. And I don't. And and on the day of Yom Kippur, um, the believers are asked or um, are, are, are spend time asking for forgiveness of sins against God. But what, are the, what I found most special and extraordinary and outstanding about this holiday, and this is why I tell you all the time that I love uh, Kwanzaa, because you can install those things that have meaning to the soul. One of the things that happens the day, before Yom Kippur, is that the believers are asked are required to ask forgiveness for their sins against people? I, I think that's very touching. I I, I don't know uh, about you, but I, I wanted to start off our broadcast tonight uh, looking at that. Uh, Looking at that I mean to just ask forgiveness It seems to me Is not enough Well there are some people who would say It's enough if you're asking for forgiveness uh, In a prayer But I think that We have to transform and we have to Change um, Our behavior Our outlook uh, Setting up a greater More deep Vision for our lives and one of the things I want to ask all of you this week to do is to begin to look at not how you can and this president can be a martyr, but how we can be a hero. Uh, I am I am constantly, for those of you who are new to us, and we do want to greet and welcome our new listeners uh, out there, uh, that we admonish you in the words or in the thoughts or expressions of of John Adams tonight Uh, for those of you who believe that we are required to give up a little liberty in order to preserve our freedoms uh, and democracy. John Adams extolled by saying that those who do that, who believe that we have to give up liberty, that we have to give up some mark of our democracy uh, to in order to preserve liberty, are those who deserve neither liberty nor freedom. So what, what I'm encouraging you to do is to think through in these turbulent times, really turbulent times in America, is to begin to think about how you can be a hero. We need heroes. Um, so uh, give it some thought. Um, you know, it, tonight, as we talk about the Civil Rights Movement and, and how it brought to us um, the Fair Housing Act and what it means and the import that housing discrimination has on the quality of lives of so many Americans – one of the things that we need to think about is that we need to try to eliminate some of the negative kinds of approaches that we have to problems in America, Um, the problems that we're having in our Congress, the problems that we have in general for elected officials, and we'll be talking with James Perry about some of those things, but we need to be thinking about how we eliminate the negativity, and get to the empowerment. And I am starting to feel real anxious about taking off the uh, two to four months from the broadcast after 28 years. uh, I am going to be taking time off to rethink what I am doing here as a broadcaster because this is not my – this is my life's work. And I have been doing this for 28 years, and one of the things – that I want to put before you as as we look at more and more of the turbulence and the complexity of both our politics, our public policy, and the principles by which we live is to understand that sometimes it's not about our character. Sometimes it's not about an ignorance. Sometimes it's simply that we have to believe that it is not that we do not know. It is that we have not learned, and there is a difference. The other is when we look at our political uh, landscape in America today, especially from our community, is that we have to be real clear about who our enemy is, and who our opposition is. And they are different, and we have to be able to approach them, navigate them, negotiate, compromise with them in different ways. Enemy versus opposition. Thank you so very much for being with us. And we're going to uh, move and look at 45 years later, the Fair Housing Act. James Perry Esquire, thank you so much for joining us again at our common ground.
5: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. It's been about a year and a half or so since we've spoken.
3: Oh, it's been a long. It's been too long. Sure. Um, you know, this this new schedule that I have had for a couple of years now, doing weekly shows rather than daily shows, really slows me down in terms of the work that I want to do. Um, but gets uh, somehow, it's at a slower pace. How are you?
5: I'm good. I'm good. But you know, I assume it allows you to dig a little bit deeper. And you know, I had um, as long as I've been doing fair housing work, I had never heard. I've heard clips of that speech by Lyndon B. Johnson, but I had never heard that much of it. And um, oh, wow. And it, I, and, and it was quite moving to hear it at the opening of the show, and I, I think that's evidence that that even doing a weekly show rather than a daily show, the, the kind of impact that your work has is, is just so important.
1: Well,
3: thank you very much, and we are just so honored because uh, the work that you do uh, it resonates all over the nation. I mean, I, I when when I say that you are a housing Discrimination and housing crisis leader, uh, it, it really means that you have set the model. I mean, five hundred million dollars on a on a, a housing discrimination case is uh, just absolutely out, outstanding.
5: It's, well, uh, it, well, I, I will put it into some context, though. You know, for for folks who. Who've not heard about that case? It's a case involving uh, the recovery in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. And um, while uh, half of a billion with a B dollars is a is a significant uh, outcome, we were shooting for three billion dollars. <laughs> and so, interestingly enough, none of us were, were quite happy with with the outcome. Um, you know, the the ability of the city of, the, of New Orleans to recover after Hurricane Katrina has everything to do with whether or not the right resources. Uh, are allocated to every community. And at the point that you leave our communities like the Lower Ninth Ward and other majority African-American communities, then they just cannot recover. And so half of a billion dollars uh, is a good step in the right direction, but it's not enough money to fully rebuild the city and to, to bring it back to the great wonder that New Orleans was before Katrina hit.
3: Well, you know, one of the reasons I was so supportive of you when you were a candidate for mayor is because I thought that in all of the priorities any candidate would have, it would be to do such rebuilding. And uh, I think the citizens of uh, New Orleans uh, failed in many ways in understanding uh, as a candidate what you were bringing uh, to uh public policy and to and 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 to the leadership uh and I have been watching and watching to see if your name would pop up again <laughs> <laughs> well,
6: let's talk
3: about this 45 year journey the the goal of the fair housing movement um when the act was first passed was to create racially and ethnically diverse neighborhoods um, in t- only in terms of benefits to racial or ethnic minorities. Yeah. But today, we recognize that diverse neighborhoods have some tangible benefits for all people who live in them. T- tell us from your point of view as you work with communities, look at the issues of both housing discrimination and the um, offering of housing opportunities uh, without discrimination, what essentially can we say is the banner of the goal of the fair housing movement today? Well, um,
5: I'd say a few things. The first is is for people who are not familiar with fair housing. I I think that people sometimes don't realize just how impactful where you live is on, um, on the outcomes in your life. And so, for instance, you can look at a person's zip code and oftentimes get a pretty good guess about how long they will live just based on their zip code because your neighborhood is that determinative of outcomes in your life. There's a case um, that, that that we worked on uh, in a community called St. Bernard Parish, where the parish passed a law that was going to make it almost impossible for people of color to rent a home uh, in their community. Now, St. Bernard Parish is adjacent to the city of New Orleans. St. Bernard Parish has the number one school system in the entire state of Louisiana, while the city of New Orleans has one of the worst school systems in the entire state of Louisiana. So if people have an opportunity to move into St. Bernard Parish, to rent in St. Bernard Parish, then it means that they can afford their children one of the best education opportunities that the state of Louisiana has to offer. And and, and I think that, that, that that's it. That's the whole point is that it's it's your opportunity to pick what you think is best for your life, for your family, and, and to be able to make the choices that make, make it real for you. And so, so that, that's what fair housing is. And so as we move into this, uh, this new time, it's become really clear that as much as, as this movement has had a great impact on America, there's still a lot of work to do. And I think that that was made clear by the uh, financial crisis, uh, the the idea that the entire country comes to uh, its economic knees and almost to a standstill because of the bias in the way that banks and mortgage companies were lending in communities of color. And then ultimately extending those bad policies beyond communities of color into uh, majority white communities. Uh, If we had been able to take the right stand around fair housing issues when we saw those problems popping up in Latino and African-American and Asian-American communities, then we could have prevented the nation from having one of the worst financial crises that it's ever seen. So... uh, Clearly, the inability of the nation to take a stand and to, to stop itself from faltering because of discrimination by mortgage companies and banks is evidence that, we, that while we've done a lot, there's a lot to be done and a lot more to accomplish in this realm of fair, mm-hmm. of fair housing.
3: I mean, most people who are listening to this broadcast would think that housing uh, discrimination only is, are those issues which have to do with discriminating, discriminating against racial minority, minorities or ethnic minorities, but and and don't recognize that the Fair Housing Act has other wider uh, protections.
6: Uh, religious
3: discrimination, uh, discrimination against um, uh, uh, the the new rule from HUD, for instance. Uh, the, the lesbian, gay, transgender, mm-hmm. um, LB, I, 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 <laughs> I can't catch that term, LBT G-D-T. rule.
5: Right. Well, well rule. Janice, I, I'll tell you that the, uh, if I can just jump back in time a little bit, you know, um, when, when you and I first spoke and I was a candidate, I thought that I was going to talk to someone about this, regular old kind of political issues and so forth. And you blew my mind when you knew so much about fair housing. And and, and you still impress me um, with the way that you're able to keep up with, with all the different changes in, in this field. But you're absolutely right. There, so there are seven protections under the Federal Fair Housing Act. People are prohibited from discriminating against uh, other folks based on their race, their color, their disability, their familial status, their sex, their national origin, or even their religion. Uh, Now, the law itself does not prohibit discrimination based on someone's sexual orientation, but uh, but President Obama took an affirmative step to signal uh, his belief that the law should uh, cover people and prohibit discrimination based on sexual identification or sexual orientation. And so he had HUD to pass a rule saying that um, if you are living in or residing in any property that receives federal funding, then in those properties – In addition to the other seven protections, you also cannot discriminate against the person because they are gay or lesbian, or because of their sexual identification. And uh, and so, and what we hope is that. Uh, at some point soon, Congress will be willing to move forward on amending the Fair Housing Act to add a clear protection for people who are gay and transgendered. And, and then, and then one one additional step forward uh, uh, is that we'd also like to see a change in the Fair Housing Act so that it prohibits discrimination based on a person's source of income. So you can't in some communities you can't deny someone because they have a Section Eight voucher or because they uh, are on SSI. Uh, but then, but but if you don't live in one of the communities that has one of these very progressive per, progressive versions of the law, then someone can deny you just because you use a Section Eight voucher, and I don't think that that's right. And so mm-hmm. that's that's a step that we hope Congress will take as well in the coming years. Uh,
3: the the other piece that I think uh, people are unfamiliar with is the protection of children yeah. in regard to housing <laughs> discrimination that. Um, an entity cannot discriminate against uh, familial status, and that is because people have children. Right, right. Yeah, and it it, it it helps us to really get a broader understanding of why this law is so important to everyone.
5: Janice, shortly after Hurricane Katrina, uh, I had uh, I got a call from a family who had been. They lost their home in Katrina, lost everything, had been forced to evacuate, and it's a husband, a wife, and they had four kids. And there, there was such a shortage in New Orleans, of housing in the city of New Orleans that it was incredibly difficult for them to find a place. But over the phone, uh, the wife, after calling for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, finally found an apartment. It was a three-bedroom apartment which for them was was going to be perfect. You know, one bedroom for the parents, uh, one bedroom for the two boys, and one bedroom for the two girls. And so they signed the lease, set everything up, and moved down. And so they were in Arizona. So they packed up all their stuff. They sent their last paycheck down to the landlord to reserve the apartment, packed everything up, drove down, all all of them in the U-Haul. They get down to the city of New Orleans, get down to the apartment. The landlord sees uh, that they have uh, kids and says, you know, um, sometimes I make exceptions and allow kids. Um, and I, I might allow one or two, but I definitely won't allow four kids. I'm just not going to do it. And so they ended up sleeping on the street for about a week because they had given him their last check, and he was and he gave them difficulty about giving them a refund. And it, it, it completely uprooted their lives for several months. And ultimately they found us, and we contacted the landlord, and after uh Complaining back and forth with with him, ended up filing a suit, and 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 so now they're not worried about where they rent because they own a home, um, and and so and, and you know ultimately I think that people don't realize that um, that you can't deny someone just because they have kids. Every single person needs safe, decent, affordable housing, and if you're a landlord and you have that available, you can't deny folks just because uh, you don't think that kids should have housing at your apartment complex.
3: Mm-hmm. And 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 because we have one of the things that I I say to my audience each week is that we have to understand these laws. We have to understand the regulations that uh, there are. They become tools in our toolbox uh, to work toward justice in this country. Now. Uh, From what I have read and what I understand is that nationally the incidence of housing discrimination is down, but in the last 18 months there have been at least 4 million fair housing violations in this country. Uh, What can you tell us about what those violations look like?
5: Sure. Well, uh, so there are a few very important points. here. The, the, The first one is that Uh, Discrimination has changed Over the last several decades It used to be that When someone would deny you an apartment uh, They would say I'm sorry I just don't rent to blacks I'm sorry we we just don't allow Latinos And and they would be upfront about their reasoning But now that it's become So um, well known That it's illegal to do that Most landlords uh, will deny you But not tell you that they're denying you because of your race or religion or disability or whatever the case may be. And so one of the problems or difficulties that we've had as a movement is that people oftentimes experience discrimination, and they have this feeling that's kind of running up their spine. They know something's not right, but they don't have any evidence. They don't have proof that discrimination has occurred. And, and so one of the, the first messages that I'd send to, to everyone listening is if you believe that you've experienced discrimination, if you just have a hunch and you don't even have any evidence, then still call the Fair Housing Center in your community. Call, there are Fair Housing Centers all across this nation. Call them, and they will be happy to talk to you and to investigate. One of the, And the reason for calling is that we use a, a fairly sophisticated tool of mystery shopping that we call testing. So, for instance, if someone calls and says that, Uh, they are an African-American female and that they believe they were discriminated against when trying to rent an apartment, then we will test that landlord who who turned that African-American female down. We will send uh, an African-American female and a white female to that same apartment, uh, and they will be uh, equally established so that they will have similar credit, they will have uh, similar income, similar jobs. When they show up, they'll even be dressed similarly. And, and and so, in theory, if they're both equally qualified for, for the apartment, then the landlord should give them the same information. But if the landlord, instead of giving them the same information, tells the white right, uh, candidate that the apartment is immediately available and that they can move in and that uh, he will even do a discount on the deposit for them, but then tells the African-American candidate that nothing is available but that if something does come up that the deposit will be uh, a few hundred dollars more than what was advertised, and there 's probably evidence of discrimination, and unfortunately, the only way to discover it is through this very testing process that i 've just talked about and so 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 while there were there were millions and millions of incidents of discrimination, uh, there were only a, a few thousand that were actually uh, complained about. Uh, in 2011 there were only 27,000 complaints of discrimination in, in 2011 despite the fact that we estimate that millions and millions of times people were discriminated against but the issue is that they did not know to call an organization like ours so so that's that's the first thing and then the, the second point about about discrimination getting smarter uh janice has potentially a uh, a destructive impact on our entire nation unlike anything we've ever seen before um so one of the concepts that we use to litigate fair housing cases is called disparate impact. Uh, and the idea here is that sometimes um, a large entity will do something that they didn't intend to be discriminatory, but the effect of their actions is in fact discriminatory. Uh, so for instance, a, a bank might pass a policy that they didn't intend to keep people from getting loans, but in the end it stopped people uh, for instance, stopped African-Americans from getting loans. So um, this is the policy that's been used, or the the concept, the disparate impact concept, is what's being used to litigate cases against Wells Fargo and Bank of America and all the major banks that um, caused the foreclosure crisis in America. And it's been widely successful. So um, there's a case before the Supreme Court. It's called the Mount Holly case. And in that case, the Supreme Court is considering whether or not uh, it is allowable to use disparate impact in fair housing law and if if the Supreme Court and of course the court right now is, is fairly conservative if they look at this concept and strike it down then it has the potential to stymie uh, the majority of civil rights lawsuits not just in fair housing but but all across the nation, when you think about civil rights lawsuits, for instance, the class action suit against Walmart involving employment discrimination, that was a disparate impact case. When you think about some of, many of these voting rights cases that are going before the court, those are most of those are disparate impact cases. And the same is true about these fair housing cases. If, if the court dismantles this concept, it has potential to, to really uh, almost destroy our ability to bring civil rights cases. And so uh, – That's a major, major concern Mm -hmm. for us, and and you're going to see how the court rules on this, right? But it has Mm -hmm. many of us quite concerned.
3: Well, uh, I am really pleased to see that in housing the disparate impact analysis is finally being used. Uh, You know my legal work has always been under Title VII where disparate Mm -hmm. impact uh, analysis has always been applied to look at the differences and be able to to categorically and statistically demonstrate them, but in housing it seems that that has not been so that uh prior to this um, you haven't heard very much about uh disparate impact or disparate- ana- disparate impact analysis on housing you you mentioned. Uh, the whole notion of of both uh market testing and um uh local um, ordinances and regulations let's talk a little bit more about that um before we go to break because I think people do not understand that it is nonprofit organizations like yours that gets funded to conduct enforcement. Education and outreach uh, in local areas, and I also want to talk about state responsibilities and state regulations. I know we have in Massachusetts we have very strong um, um, non discrimination and uh, housing discrimination enforcement, but in some states that's not true. Yeah. How do we as a nation begin to synchronize this whole principle of eliminating housing uh discrimination
5: yeah, that's a big question uh you know i was uh on on friday morning i gave a keynote speech in springfield massachusetts as a matter of fact uh for the massachusetts uh fair, uh fair housing center uh and oh, i got an the-
3: invitation to that and i didn't i didn't know that you were going to be there
5: Oh, I, it, and, and, and I'm just as, as we're talking now, just realizing that I probably should have reached out to you. Uh, but, <laughs> but 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 it, but but it, but it, it, it helps to validate your point, though, that um, that this movement is a movement that is happening city by city, state by state, community by community, and it is small non-profit organizations. The, the, the Fair Housing Center uh, that I was working with on Friday in Mass in Springfield, Massachusetts, has only four staff members. But they are doing important impactful work. Springfield was hit by a tornado two years ago and and there are some questions about whether or not funding is being allocated fairly, and they are at the forefront of ensuring that the mayor in Springfield allocates money to all communities in an equal and fair fashion and and, and so so, so you 're right it is these small organizations that don 't have a lot of funding that are working every single day to make sure that people have equal housing opportunity. Mm-hmm. And 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 that's juxtaposed against um, this issue of what kind of state they're operating in. And so you're right, Massachusetts is a state that is quite open to ensuring people have equal housing opportunity. And that's 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 very different from a state like Mississippi, for instance, that does takes as many steps as they can to prevent people from having uh, equal housing opportunity. And uh, and and so the, the, the issue uh, becomes. Uh, this age-old problem that has existed when dealing with civil rights laws that is the balance of federal powers versus states' rights. And, um, and and you know, it's one of these issues where I certainly am, am an opportunist <laughs> in that uh, when uh, when the states' uh, rules, you know, if I'm operating in, in Massachusetts and the states' rules uh, go further to provide civil rights, than the federal law, then I certainly am a, am a proponent of states' rights. <laughs> but at mm-hmm. the very moment that I'm litigating a case in Mississippi, uh, then thank goodness for uh, the federal powers that allow federal uh, civil rights laws to exist. And so, so I, 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 you know, um, until we see some progress from Congress, uh, where Congress moves to expand the Federal Fair Housing Act and add additional protections for source of income, For um, for lesbian, gay, transgendered status, Uh, I think that we're going to continue to be in in a circumstance where um, where advocates have to fight extremely hard in communities that aren't open to uh, progress in the realm of civil rights.
3: Well, it's it's been very disheartening to me, and, and and not only in terms of what we understand, the public understands about housing discrimination. Uh, as much as organizations like yours uh, attempt to do outreach work, I think that people really do not understand what this Fair Housing, the import of this Fair Housing Act. You know, um, l- last week I had the opportunity to to listen to and to speak with Alexander uh, Polikoff mm-hmm. as he talked about the A- housing um, report and the impact that unsafe, um, dense housing um, and uh, just unsafe both physically and uh, emotionally unsafe housing has on children. And, of course, we know that he was talking about poor children and uh, children who are at risk. And I was just so disheartened that we're not placing those kinds of issues, the socioeconomic issues, inside the policies that we have, have developed. And I'm hoping that fair housing people will do that. I don't know if you've followed all of that, but <laughs> we're going to take a break. And when we come back, I do want to talk about the foreclosure crisis and predatory lending and how all of that – has comes under the protection of the fair Housing Act, which back in nineteen sixty six we we would never have thought about
6: yeah.
3: um, and to talk about a new principle that's being applied in in uh housing discrimination, and that is affirmatively furthering because most of the people out listening to us will say well the affirmatively Act, affirmative actions not working in employment. How do you <laughs> apply that in housing? Yeah. And we're going to try to answer your questions. You're listening to Our Common Ground, and we are so glad to have you tonight. Uh, at some point, we're going to invite you to join us in this conversation, and we hope that you will. This is Our Common Ground. you're tuned in to Our Common Ground. Thank you for being with us.
1: We'll be right back with more talk that matters. This is Our Common Ground.
3: I'm Janice Grant with James Perry, a national leading housing advocate in America.
1: Legal Services represents people in all types of housing cases, including mortgage foreclosures, unlawful evictions, and substandard housing conditions.
2: It got to the point where the house was in foreclosure. I found myself against the wall and decided to do something and take some action.
1: This client was talked into a loan he couldn't afford. A year later, he owed more than ever before and had nothing to show for it. I called Legal Services and I got someone on the phone immediately. Had I not gotten help from Legal Services, I wouldn't be here today.
3: This is Janice Graham, coming up next week on Our Common Ground. The esteemed historian and historical researcher, our wonderful, extraordinary, and outstanding brother, Dr. Renoko Rashidi. Next week, here at Our Common Ground, an evening with Dr. Renoko Rashidi, exploring and sharing his life and work. An intimate conversation with this brilliant and extraordinary scholar. We hope you'll join us, too. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Hey, India, it's Janice. Us talk chicks got to stick together. You and your real raw Right now, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Monday through Friday. And me and my brave, black, and bold, Saturdays, 10 p.m. There's no doubt, us talk chicks, we know where the real talk is. And we know what to do on their radio. You It's
6: a cold and crazy world. that's raging outside. But baby, me and all my girls. I'll bring on the fire. Show a little leg. Gotta
1: see
3: me, your chest.
1: I'm
3: telling speaking to All the girls on a tonight,
1: We said,
3: Here come the
6: ladies. will give a little show. Brown brought
1: and black Saturdays, 10 PM. And you declare eleven AM to one PM Monday through Friday. Blog Talk Radio, I declare the common ground. Common yeah, ground.
4: On an April afternoon in the year nineteen sixty six. I asked a distinguished group of citizens that were interested in human rights to meet me in the Cabinet Room in the White House. In their presence that afternoon, I signed a message to the Congress. That message called for the enactment, and I quote, "...of the first effective federal law against discrimination in the sale and the rental of housing in the United States of America. Few in the nation, and the record will show that very few in that room that afternoon, believed that fair housing would in our time become the unchallenged law of this land. And indeed, this bill has had a long and stormy trip. We did not get it in 1966. We pled for it again in 1967, but the Congress took no action that year. We asked for it again this year, and now, at long last this afternoon, its day has come. I do not exaggerate when I say that the proudest moments of my presidency have been times such as this. When I have signed into law the promises of a century.
3: You're listening to Our Common Ground. We're examining the Fair Housing Act and Housing America 45 years later. Thank you for being with us tonight. And we do thank you for being with us tonight with James Perry he is the director executive director of the Greater New Orleans Fair Housing Center Action Center. And uh we thank you again James for being with us uh again at our common ground. This is such a rich piece of our history. Um, it, it gives you an appreciation of really how far we have come.
5: It does. You know, um at the uh, speech in Springfield, Massachusetts, uh, I, I put up a, sli- a slide uh, during my presentation that showed an image of uh, of a lynching, and uh, and you know one of the most fascinating things, Janice, that, that I, I'm sure you've observed if you ever seen any of those pictures, is that no one, none of the white people attending the lynchings are hiding. In fact, no. many, of the, most of the time, they're actually posing and clearly enjoying the social environment there, having a good time. No one is embarrassed to about the fact that they are uh, killing and mutilating a citizen. And you know, you you, uh, you flash forward, for instance, to uh, what was one of the I think funniest political moments um, in recent history when um, Kanye West when. Um, Talked about President Bush and said that he didn't care about black people in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. And only a few years later, when President Bush wrote his memoir and and spoke about it to Matt Lowell on the Today Show, he ended up saying that that was the low point in his presidency when Kanye West called him a racist. So, so not the 9/11 attacks on America, not dealing with the war in, in Iraq. Or, or any of these inc- huge issues that impacted the nation, but instead being called a racist was the low point in this presidency. So the idea that we go from the point that, that people are proud to commit murder in public uh, against black people uh, to, to to get to a point where the president thinks that the low point is being called a racist, it means that we've had a lot of progress, but there's clearly mm-hmm. still a lot of work to get to, have, to get done.
3: Absolutely, and I think that people... Uh, get the bits and pieces, and as a broadcaster, I feel it's my responsibility to try to bring it all together, which brings me to most of the people out there have seen the Pulitzer Prize-winning series of articles called The Color of Money, which was published in uh, the Atlanta Journal in 1988, and if you have not seen it, you should see it because it demonstrates – you should read it – It it demonstrates racial disparities in home mortgage lendings in Atlanta, Georgia, and gives us a real big picture about what predatory lending is all about. And for those of you who are our regulars, you remember when we were with John Relman, uh, the attorney who represented the plaintiffs in the case against Wells Fargo in Baltimore County, Maryland. James, tell us about... The, give us a picture of how discrimination caused the current foreclosure crisis.
5: Absolutely. Well, f- first of all I, I, uh, John Roman, i just say, is an incredible uh, attorney and fair housing advocate uh, who I've worked with many, many times and so I'm so happy that you, you've spoken to him on the show. Uh, so here, here's Uh, the thing that began to happen in the late 90s is that mortgage companies were doing extraordinarily well making loans, but um, the people who were investing were saying you have to grow the market. You have to find more opportunity to make more money. And, look, you've spent so many years uh, turning down people in black neighborhoods and Latino neighborhoods. We think that there's an opportunity there, and we want you to make loans to those people, and and we want you to find a way to do it that is profitable. So what the mortgage companies did was said, you're right, you know, we've been turning these folks down, and so so now since we've been discriminating for so long, they are desperate to have someone to simply say yes to them. And so the mortgage companies came up with all of these different types of loans that, that frankly, were just over the top, that sometimes had interest rates that were double and even triple standard interest rates, Um, mortgage loans that really required people to essentially sign their lives on the dotted line in order to purchase a home. And what they started to do was to go into these neighborhoods and aggressively market those loans. And and, and they wouldn't just send, you know, your average white guy in the tie into the black neighborhood. Instead, they would find someone in the neighborhood, someone who was African American, someone who was well-known, someone who was respected, and they would get that person to be the loan officer. And so they would get someone who looks like you to to sell you a loan, and and, and you, thinking that this is someone who's from your neighborhood, someone who's from your community, and someone that you can trust, would sign with them. And it didn't seem right that, you know, they're saying, sign this paper with a 15 percent interest rate, but you're seeing uh, advertisements for interest rates that are five, six, and seven percent, that doesn't seem right, but you know you can trust this person. And so over and over again, people in African-American communities and Latino communities would would take on these loans. And, and of course, the term for these loans is is, a predatory loan. Um, uh,
3: But really what it was was a whole industry called subprime mortgages.
5: Uh, Absolutely. (laughs) And, and look, you know, I I, I want to. Uh, oftentimes, I'm I'm a person who doesn't name name, but I want to name names. So I want to just really bring this home for people. Uh, a lot of folks will remember that Tavis Molley was doing events all across the time. Oh, I was about to
3: bring that up. People <laughs> need to understand why he is being so criticized.
5: He would do these events all across the nation. He he was being sponsored by Wells Fargo, and he would do these financial literacy courses all across the nation where he would come into your community and say, you know, I'm a leader in the African-American community, and, you know, you can trust me. I'm a respected voice. And then he would would have – the Wells Fargo folks to sign up people in that community for loans and sign you up for a loan and then that loan was aggressive and had overbearing interest rates and it was set up so that you would of course absolutely lose your home there was no way that you could actually pay the payments and then people lost their homes in those communities and, and so, so eventually the, the mortgage companies uh, realized, hey, this works not only in African-American and Latino communities, uh, but it also works in white communities. And so so after they had stripped all the equity out of out of black and Latino communities, they then began to do, make these same kinds of loans in communities around the nation. And so what happens is that you get to a point where you have so many people who can't afford to pay their mortgages and go into default and eventually face foreclosure, that the mortgage companies end up in a situation where, where they're underwater too because they can't handle all the foreclosures that they're dealing with. And, and in the end, if you have all the largest mortgage companies in the nation facing the same problem, then there's not enough money to make the, the mortgage industry solvent, and before you know it, financial crisis for the entire nation.
3: hmm mm-hmm which had a devastating impact on minority communities, and most of us don't really hone into how that devastation operates. And one of the things that happened is because of the lack of Department of Justice oversight and enforcement uh, with these organizations, the political cycle came in, (laughs) the political machine, and tried to suggest, that the community reinvestment act was partly to blame or mostly to blame for this crisis problem which uh seemed to blame the canaries in the mine for the explosion
5: right right yeah you know and 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 you know it's such a typical approach for the mortgage industry. So the reason right now, I I talked about the disparate impact law. So after all these mortgage companies uh, ruined the entire American economy, uh, civil rights groups and the Department of Justice began to sue them using disparate impact Rules, And so the reason that this Mount Holly case and other cases are going before the Supreme Court is that the mortgage industry is pushing those cases forward to the Supreme Court to try to get the Supreme Court to reverse and get rid of disparate impact because they want that rule out of there. So that they can go back to doing business the way that they used to do it, and it's the same thing. You know, they so so first of all, if there's a problem and something goes wrong, then you you blame the victim instead of the people who actually perpetrated the problem, and then you go out and try to change the rules. That's what they're trying to do. And and, and Janice, you talked about the effect in, uh, on the African American community and the way that people may not realize how bad that effect was. You know, the the, the wealth gap uh, has always existed between Uh, African-Americans and white Americans, mainly because African-Americans came to America as property rather than as property owners. So in in 1984, the wealth gap in America uh, was such that white Americans had on average $113,000 of wealth, while African-American families had about uh, $5,600 worth of wealth. So there was about an $85,000 gap between the two. But so, if you fast forward to 2009, just as we are um, starting to come out of the crisis, but still certainly dealing with the financial crisis, that wealth gap had widened in an exponential fashion. The, um, for, for white Americans, the median wealth was $265,000, but for black Americans, the median wealth was $28,000. So the wealth gap was $235,000, more than double what it was only a few decades ago mm-hmm. and and what and what's clear is that the impact of the financial crisis was such that it absolutely stripped enormous amounts of wealth out of African American community and uh and it's unclear when if ever uh, this community is going to be able to recover that wealth
3: right. I read a report James recently uh about um another report by the Mortgage Bankers Association that reported that there were 44 million active mortgages throughout the country and approximately something like 300,000 entered into foreclosure during the third quarter of 2011 and that that happened to be the highest rate of foreclosures in more than 35 years in this country. But the, but what I, what I gathered from the report was that that the spillover effects of foreclosures uh, harm the entire community, and that's what people didn't tend to, don't get tend to get about why uh, the Fair Housing Act and the regulations around predatory that enforce the elimination of predatory lending is is so important because foreclosures lead to a decrease in property values near the foreclosed homes as well as the abandoned homes. Um, And and when we look at it, folks, it, it, it increases the risk of fire and crime and drugs, and then we say it's a deterior- it was, the neighborhoods become deteriorated, uh, increases in homelessness and job loss and deterioration of schools. I mean, yes. I was just, James, I was just stunned. I don't know if you remember the testimony before the commission, the housing commission of uh, Professor, uh, I think his name is, uh, Marvin or Melvin Oliver, Ooh. when he focused on the effects of subprime mortgage meltdown on the wealth of minority households, particularly African Americans, mm-hmm. uh, talking about how the crisis illustrated that when America catches a cold, African Americans and Latinos get pneumonia because subprime mort that the sub prime mortgage meltdown uh for african americans along with uh, other minorities and low income populations uh essentially created the largest wealth gap that we have seen in the history of this country
5: which is which is pretty amazing isn't it when when you think about the idea that at the at the beginning um of the creation of the American um, experiment, that black people were property and could not, could not in fact own property. And so, even going back to to a point when when it was illegal for black people to own property because they were property, it's it's still true that at this moment the wealth gap is larger than it was even then. I mean that that that's it's 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 incredible. And it's sinful. And and, and I'll I'll take it a step further. I I, want to be careful not to let the cat out of the bag, but I I happen to know that there is a a major announcement that's going to happen in the early part of next week. Um, and it's involving a major uh, mortgage company and, uh, and and a settlement and a case against them. And, and, and ultimately, it turns out that not only were they engaging in all these aggressive predatory lending uh, activities in uh, in, in African American neighborhoods, but when they would foreclose on properties and take ownership of those properties, if they would not take care of the properties. Now if the property if they did foreclosures in white neighborhoods, then they would pay a company to board the properties to cut the grass and to maintain them. And and if you go by those properties, oftentimes it didn't even look like they were vacant properties because the bank did such a good job maintaining them. But you go by the properties in African American neighborhoods and the windows are knocked out, the grass is uncut, they've been Spray painted over, and, and they're in just horrible, terrible shape. And, 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 and this, and it turns out that this is a trend across the nation. And so it, it's adding injury to, adding insult to injury. This idea that that after they strip wealth from the community by denying people the opportunity to have housing, then they hold this piece of property and keep it in terrible shape, so that they further bring down the property values of the people who are still living in the community. It, it's, mm-hmm. it's incredibly mm-hmm. reprehensible.
3: Well, we we certainly see that uh, in the case uh, the case made against the people of Detroit, yeah. uh, <laughs> yeah. and and they use the outcome of the devastation to yeah. uh, justify uh, the uh, the management mandate to take over the administration of the city. Uh, James, let me ask you uh as we talk about this foreclosure crisis, what is the uh, what are the advocates for uh people who and organizations um addressing um, to promote fair housing goals as part of the response to the foreclosure crisis? uh both at the federal level and the, and the state level i know that you're in a state that you have um uh the president of a stupid club and governor <laughs> <laughs> uh, mr uh governor bobby gendel yeah. uh <laughs> <laughs> so what are advocates um fair housing advocates suggesting To this administration, that uh, something that uh, policies that can be promulgated to uh, fairly address the devastation of the subprime mortgage crisis in minority communities?
5: Sure. Well, look, um, so on one hand, uh, this administration has done more in fair housing than we've seen, certainly in the past. Twenty years, the Obama administration has been uh, has been extremely aggressive on taking on really tough and difficult fair housing cases, and has particularly been quite interested in taking on race cases. And so we applaud them for that. But at the same time, uh, it's clear to us that there has not been enough done in terms of enforcement on uh, on these uh, large lending cases, and so. The, the, the first thing that, that we've done is to become really clear that when, it, when you're dealing with, um, for instance, a, a, a company the size of Wells Fargo where their income just for the fourth quarter of 2012 could be 2 or $3 billion, um, it's not going to be little mom-and-pop fair housing centers that change the way that they do business. And so we can certainly chip away at it, and and our members uh, members of the National Fair Housing Alliance across the nation have been doing that, and we've had some big wins. And, you know, the the, the way that John Roman ends up uh, working with the city of Baltimore, uh, Baltimore, for instance, is through a community fair housing organization. But in in the end, we need uh, the Department of Justice to take a strong stand. And, And what they'll say is, you know, they'll go down the list of all the wins that they've had in, in all these cases and all these settlements against the mortgage companies, but what we say is that's that's a that's a good first step, but it's not enough. We need mm-hmm, more.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: we need we need more <laughs> success in litigation, and we also need more regulation. Is,
3: is there uh, is there a move on on by the advocacy fair housing advocacy groups at this point uh, to uh, to Ensure that uh, there is an evaluation of programs designed to return foreclosed properties to active use.
5: Um, I, you know, I I don't know about a program like that, and I, and I, and I'll just I also say uh, this isn't directly on point, but 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 it helps to illustrate, I think, some of the frustration that that we've had in some of these cases. Uh, you know. A, there was a recent announcement of, uh, of the settlement of, of a, a large case against a large mortgage company, and um, as uh, I think it's, it was a Bank of America case, and it was tens of millions of dollars that Bank of America was going to have to pay out. But when you did the math and calculated how much money would make it out to individual homeowners who suffered at the hands of their policies, each homeowner was only going to get three to five hundred dollars three to five hundred dollars after losing your home.
3: Yes. You know and, and that brings to me one of the things that uh I have been thinking about all week and thinking about uh, this broadcast is that I'm not understanding why this administration is not ensuring that there's some kind of coordination between fair uh federal fair lending enforcement, um um Between HUD, the Department of Justice, the bank regulatory agencies, and private fair housing groups uh, prioritizing fair housing and fair lending mitigation, as well as looking at challenging the disparate impact of practices and policies such as discretionary pricing policies that have a discriminatory impact on minority uh, borrowers, because you're absolutely right. If you lose your your house to uh, foreclosure, and even if you find a workout plan, then the lenders come back with other kinds of disc, uh, discriminatory impact policy and put people back in the hole. I mean, it's like
6: yeah, there's a yeah. whole
3: uh, uh, catch-22 of discrimi- discrimi- uh, discrimination impact. So, However, you
5: know, so as as much as I as I just beat up on the administration a bit, here, here are a few. Um, you know, as far as at least under my analysis, um, I think this is some explanation of of what's been happening. Uh, so, I think it's pretty clear that that this is an issue that the Obama administration prioritizes and believes is really important, uh, but. You know, they came into uh, the federal government, came into uh, the U.S. Department of HUD and, and the Department of Justice, and found uh, bureaucrats who had been uh, completely beat up, demeaned, discredited, and, and put to the side under the Bush administration, and and who also, frankly, hadn't been able to get that much accomplished under the Clinton administration. and And so I think that they've had some difficult time uh, getting people to co- be comfortable with the idea that that it is not only acceptable, but um, to, to do civil, good civil rights work, but also that you will be rewarded for doing good civil rights work. And you re- you'll remember the circumstance when the Bush administration went through the, the Department of Justice and systematically removed any lawyer who they thought was either not uh, a conservative or who was um, really committed to doing actual civil rights work. Okay. Uh, and and so so trying to overcome so that, so that they've had this ship that's been going uh, in the wrong direction for more than a decade and, and and I think that that it's been harder than anyone expected to turn it around and get it to go the right direction now so 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 but that's no excuse right I mean it's. Um, we didn't elect uh, Barack Obama because this job would be, be easy. <laughs> uh, you know, he, he, he was elected president because we thought that he was the person who could take on this very, very difficult task. So despite the fact that it's a difficult thing to do, it's our job to continue to push him harder and harder and harder. And so each time that they have a success, each time that they win, it's our job to say that's great, but we want more.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: Great, I, I want, want to remind
3: more. people that this has been – that this whole issue of housing discrimination and eliminating housing discrimination and creating and expanding housing opportunity for Americans has been a very murky road. James, let me read to you something that Senator Edward Brooke, who I had the honor of, of knowing for most of my life, oh. and he said this about, Uh, Housing Discrimination and Housing in America in 1968. He said that what adds to the murk is a apparent belief in its own sincerity. Uh, In talking about the Federal Housing um, uh, Agency, he said today's federal housing official commonly invades against the evils of ghetto life even as he pushes buttons that ratify their triumph, even as he okays public housing sites in the heart of Negro slums, releases planning and urban renewal funds to cities dead set against integration, and approves the financing of suburban subdivisions from which Negroes will be barred. These and similar acts are committed daily by officials who say they are unalterably opposed to segregation and have the memos to prove it. But when you (laughs) ask one of these gentlemen why, despite the 1962 fair housing order, most public housing is still segregated. He inevitably blames it on regional custom local tradition, personal prejudices of municipal housing officials. And so now we have, as I have heard on the grapevine, this new mandate to affirmatively further fair housing, which means that the federal government is required to do more than simply not discriminate itself, it reflects the desire to have the federal government use its grant programs to assist in ending discrimination and segregation to the point where the supply of genuinely open housing increases. Is that going to happen?
5: (laughs) I I hope. uh, And I loved
3: Edward. Were, yeah. I mean, he was a Republican in a time where it wasn't dirty and evil to be a Republican. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know,
5: he, 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 obviously, he and Walter Mondale are heroes of the Fair Housing Movement. You know, as you well know, uh, they are the, the brains from which the Fair Housing Act uh, uh, came. And, uh, and and on this question of whether or not um, we will be able to. Use this concept of affirmatively furthering fair housing to cause communities to truly integrate. Um, I think it's going to be difficult, but but I certainly think it's it's possible. You know, the um, this uh, HUD, the Obama HUD, has done an incredible job of taking on Westchester, New York. And uh, you know, Westchester is a it's a very affluent community uh, just outside of of, of of New York City, and um, and for years and years and years they received federal funding, and when they would receive federal funding, uh, they would check off in a box and say that they were using it in a way that affirmatively furthered fair housing, but all the while they would use it in a way that would build one set of housing for people who were affluent and mostly white, and a different uh, set of housing that usually was in very poor condition but fully segregated um, for people who were low income and african-american and and so for, for decades they would fill out these forms and say that they were affirmatively furthering fair housing finally a fair housing group filed suit against westchester saying that they were frankly lying on those forms and uh, and hud stepped in and uh, And got really aggressive and threatened to, and at one point actually did freeze all federal funding to Westchester County until they promised to actually affirmatively further fair housing and and so they finally made that promise and, uh, and HUD has been monitoring but even as after they made the promise, they began trying to slide through uh, ex- expenditures that uh that again would have uh caused segregation instead of uh integrated fair housing opportunities. And so HUD, again, has had to get tough on them. And so it's been one of the ongoing and difficult sagas uh, around the furthering fair housing. But I dare say HUD uh, is sticking the fight out and actually winning this fight in Westchester, New York. And, and let me say, you know, this is Westchester, New York, where folks are incredibly rich, incredibly well-resourced, have really uh, excellent attorneys. And if HUD can take on this issue in Westchester, New York, then perhaps it sets up a paradigm um, by which they can take on these issues elsewhere. So in, in Texas uh, in Galveston shortly after Hurricane Gustav, uh, HUD uh, was made aware of a similar set of circumstances where the community in using its rebuilding dollars intended to um, spend the money in a way that would not affirm the further for housing and instead segregate communities. And HUD's, put its foot down and said, no, we will keep the money before we allow you to do that. And, and so the mm-hmm. city of Galveston completely reversed how it was spending those funds. Uh, right now I have a similar case against the state of Louisiana and against St. Bernard Parish, a community in uh, in Louisiana. And, and, and HUD right now has several cases like this. i got to tell you that um, 10 years ago, if you would have uh, tried to bring a case like this, HUD would have simply laughed at you, but the idea that that this – type of case really fully populates the hud docket right now says a lot about the commitment of, of this hud and uh and we'll see uh how much progress they're able to make um uh, <laughs> you know if um and and i guess one of the issues here is that we have four more years of, of this president but the, the question becomes can we get uh you know another four years and another four years of a president who believes in this kind of progressive approach to housing and if we can then, Janice, I think it's possible. But it, it, it all it, you know, elections have real consequences.
3: Mm-hmm. Before we go to break again and before we start talking about the toolbox, I, I'd like to laud myself that it's the activists and comrades for justice that come to our common ground every <laughs> Saturday night. And most people really understand uh, the issue of housing, fair housing, Uh, and housing discrimination under a banner of Section 8, which is the Section 8 Housing Choice Voucher Program, which serves more than 4 million low-income households. The other point of reference that the average American has about um, HUD and the work that it does as um, well as Housing America and its poor and working class has to do with local housing authorities uh but they don't understand that much of the uh lo- the three largest federal housing programs in addition to section 8 and public housing is the low income housing tax credit which serves about 6 million families and uh for activists out there one of the things if you are interested in housing discrimination issues and housing in America is that I think James we need to reorient reorientate uh to permit families and children to move to better schools and less segregated communities and that means that we could dramatically alter the face of metropolitan segregation but most of the people listening to us tonight would think uh if they look in their local communities that publicly financed housing is segregated no matter how much we have done whether it be the 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 choice voucher program or whether it's the hope 6 program but it's critically important uh, for us in this country to begin to look at housing opportunities um, in regard to the resources in the community. What are are cities who receive federal funds, who receive state funds? I mean, people don't understand some of the funds go directly to their city, but some of the funds also go to the state, and the state does some uh, dis- distribution of those funds, and some states even build uh, public housing. How do we begin to really, as a as activist, begin to get a hold of how we can be part of the change and transformation that we need in this country to have housing reflect the true principles of both? justice and, quote-unquote, the American dream. I don't even know if I want to be in the American dream (laughs) as we know it, but uh, that's what people think about. How do we do that?
5: So, you you know, uh, I I was having a conversation with a uh, a, a Wall Street analyst uh, about a year or two ago and, and, and trying to get to the heart of why it was so hard for the Obama administration to keep up with all these changes that the, uh, that the industry would make that would then cause all these disasters in communities. And, and you know, and, and what he ended up saying to me is that, you know, the, the people who are doing the analysis, um, both the bureaucrats and the, the advocates, um, are really kind of watching from the outside. But you have these folks on Wall Street who are trying so hard to make more money and to find new and different creative ways to make money that they're constantly creating and trying new things, and and they're always very complex and very difficult, and um, and, and and so the advocates don't really understand it or get it until it's already impacted and harmed their mm-hmm. community, and and so we're constantly behind the eight ball, and the only way to be in front of the eight ball, he said, is to really be one of those folks who's making these bad products. And of course, we would never be there. And so, so there is this constant problem. You know, um, uh, the, the, the issue that we had in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina was that when new housing was being built, people were hearing that it was going to be built using something called a low income housing tax credit that you, obviously you just mentioned. But none of the advocates or very few of the advocates had ever heard of it. They didn't know how it worked. They didn't know what its purpose was, or or, or anything. And so it was quite hard in the first several years for advocates to organize, to do anything to inform how that money was going to be spent in their communities because they didn't understand the low-income housing tax credit process. Now, I I, I guarantee you that nine out of ten advocates in New New Orleans now uh, have an excellent understanding of how the tax credit process works and and can can, can explain it to you in great detail. But but that's a core problem is that we're constantly in this position of having to react to uh, the effects on our neighborhood. And, you know, there's a long tradition in in the African-American community, this kind of black nationalist tradition of taking on – and development and the needs of our community on our own, and attempting to build and provide for our neighborhood on our, for our community on our own. And, and you know, I'm, I'm not sure if and when that will ever happen, but, but quite frankly, as long as other people are making decisions about what's going to happen in our communities, it's going to consistently be a circumstance where they're going to make decisions that, that are best for their pocketbooks rather than what's best for our communities, our families, and our children.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, um, I had the opportunity to, as I mentioned earlier, to talk with Alex Polakoff, the civil rights lawyer behind the Gautaro versus HUD case, which led to the well regarded uh, housing mobility program for 7,000 Chicago families. And one of the things that we talked about, of course, I had him in the corner. <laughs> uh, is how how you maximize uh the education and outreach of citizens who are activists organizations which have not necessarily gotten involved in the um housing issues locally. And and one of the things we started talking about were were the uh, block grants that come out of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development and the kind of, I think, citizen oversight is a key and urgent matter on the issue of housing. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that a lot of things that go on in regard to public housing, programs like... um, I don't know if it's over or what, but uh, HOPE 6, the low-income housing tax credits, housing for people who are disabled, the the simply uh, insane numbers. And I read a number on Tuesday or or Wednesday of last week that there are uh, something like 67,000 veterans who live on our streets who are homeless and, and there are a lot of reasons why that is other than the availability of housing and, and housing benefits but this is a real urgent crisis in, in our community in the activist community in the sense of people really don't know where and how all of this happens uh, the low income housing Tax credit programs. I mean, how do you begin to? How does a community of activists begin in a community begin yeah. to embrace to understand the right. tools that make housing uh, uh, public uh, finance housing available? Because these are our tax dollars, yeah, and so, most but, people just run around and they're they're arguing and ranting yeah. and raving. And we need to have people who are involved in oversight, who are involved in monitoring. I know that in most processes, cities have to do a report uh, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. grantee. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'll I tell
5: you, I I, I want to, um, to connect you with a woman named Sheila Crowley, who is president of the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. Uh, and and I, I served on their board for a short period of time, and I, I got to tell you, it's one of the most impactful organizations that I've ever had the chance to work with. And, and the reason is that the, the, they, they uh, organize numbers across the nation, and they have an incredible toolkit that lays out all of the tools that exist both federally and on the state level to um, fund housing in communities. And and, and so, you know, and you can go and find this toolkit online, as a matter of fact, on the, on the National Low Income Housing Coalition website. And so, for instance, they give a very simple explanation of how tax credits work, of how Section 8 housing choice vouchers work, of how the HOPE 6 program works, and on and on and on. And it's in simple, straightforward language that people can use. And then, they give all their members advice on how to take on these fights, how to tackle these issues in their communities, and, and so I got to say, I've watched them over and over again in community after community, help uh, people who were struggling just to figure out what all this stuff meant. To take on some of the biggest and most difficult fights, and to win and so mm-hmm. th- the, so that 's the first reason why I, I push folks in that direction. The second reason though, is that you know, they are working they've been working for, uh, probably for about a decade now to get the federal government to create uh, the, uh, the the uh, affordable housing trust fund and to fully fund the trust fund. And the the idea behind this trust fund is that this would be money that would be set aside purpose uh, specifically for the purpose of developing more uh, affordable housing uh, for uh, very low income people in America. And under the current plan that they've put forward, and they they have a a bill that hopefully is going to be moving in Congress under the, and and they've even gotten the president uh, to include funding the trust fund in his budget under the, the current proposal, uh, if it goes forward, it could actually uh, nominally end homelessness in America within about ten to fifteen years. It's that mm-hmm. powerful and that impactful. Now it's going to be hard to do under this Congress, but I got to say, when we talk about having uh, thousands and thousands of, of veterans who fought for this country living on the streets, and when we, when you can walk through the nation's capital and see. A homeless family sleeping only blocks away from the White House. It's clear that, that there's an incredible amount of work that we have to do, and, and and this is the kind of fight that we have to support and take on. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
3: And and you know, one of the things that I think that uh, for our listeners, which is really important, is to understand that there seems to be a shift in the sand around. Uh, and I'm going to say this, the old understanding or the gossip on the street is that the federal officials, either at the Department of Justice or at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, uh, gave deference to local officials on housing. I think that this housing crisis that we face today has caused, that shift, and now is the time. For instance, every federal agency, and I want you all to write this down, and you can say Janice said it. Every federal agency has regulations around citizen involvement. And I'm not talking about regulations that suggest. I'm talking about regulations that require Citizen notification about, for instance, what your local housing authority is doing. Uh, a citizen notification and engagement about how block grants are spent. And and if you're not getting involved in that, then you are one of those people that I talked to you at the, at the top of this
6: this show
3: <laughs> that you deserve to just be able to have a room for ranting. You're listening to Our Common Ground, our guest tonight, and we're so pleased to have him in this conversation about the Fair Housing Act, housing discrimination, and housing opportunities in America, James Perry. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about emerging issues uh, in housing with him. Thank you for being with us.
2: To stick together, you and you. This is Alpha of the Alpha Show At TruthWorks Network we are asking you to support the Bobby Socks Project providing new socks to veterans and homeless persons Bobby Socks are an important to many men and women who are on their feet all day because shelters and other resources do not provide places to rest and sometimes weather means wet feet and other problems which cause all kinds of foot problems. At TruthWorks, we are asking you to support this worthwhile effort Bobby's socks. Donate new socks for the homeless and for homeless veterans. If you want to give money, you can pledge $20 a month for 12 months. Three people pledging $20 each month. To purchase 180 pair of socks. If you want to send socks or donate, contact Bobby Socks by email papabobby at gmail.com. That's Bobby Socks by email papabobby at gmail.com. If you can, help where you can. Thanks. You are listening to TruthWorks Network in support of Barbie Sox.
6: Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals, the United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more thousands of teachers and biologists. But we
0: need more.
6: And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind, is a terrible thing to
2: waste. Um, this was at a time in the early 20th century when you could see uh, European imperialism uh, moving into the third world and see people people being wiped out like in Australia. Like Commentaries on the Times you know, Radio
1: with Bell Benjamin. Thursdays 10 p.m. Insightful history, arts, music, examination of the events of our time. With Playbell Benjamin, Must Radio at Truth Arts Network. 10 p.m. Thursdays.
3: Commentaries on the Times Radio with Playfell Benjamin, live and call-in talk radio from his renowned Commentaries on the Times e-magazine, only at TruthWorks Network.
2: Republican Congress is looking to defund parts of God, Frank. In the face of these losses, of this risk-taking, why aren't the Democrats out pointing the fingers if you're saying they will be responsible should there be a need for government to step in with another bailout of banks because of this risk, about of these risky derivatives and trading? Why aren't the Democrats pointing the fingers at the people who are standing in the way of reforming the financial incident? That's malpractice, malfeasance, and this And to me, it's just simply saying, that I know, I, I'm not thinking. I know because they're getting money from these same financial institutions to stall, to get this into... But if Republicans are playing cutthroat politics, why are the Democrats playing that? And why can't they be on the offensive? And that, that's the first thing. Here's the second charge. You've got the Republicans beating this old message of debt. You've got Mitt Romney standing in front of a debt card now. And that will be the narrative. And the Democrats, you don't see this coming? You don't see this narrative coming
1: as they force another jet fight. As they, the best of political talkback, common sense, right from the concrete, urban, progressive politics, politics, politics. Friday night at TruthWorks Network, 10 p.m. Alpha drills down deep the lies, the conspiracies, in politics it's just damn
2: politics the alpha show this neighborhood sure has changed in my lifetime You know, there was a time when people like me couldn't live here because of their race or the color of their skin. I'll never forget how I felt being told I wasn't welcome in this neighborhood, that this apartment was for whites only. That got better over time, but some people still didn't get equal treatment when it came to finding a home. No,
0: there's no apartment
6: here for you.
2: Well, I own this building now. The Fair Housing Act made a difference for someone like me. It gives us the opportunity to live in communities of our choice, free from discrimination. The Fair Housing Act makes it illegal to discriminate in the renting or selling of a home because of race, color, religion, sex, national origin, familial status, or disability. Know your rights. If you believe you have experienced housing discrimination, contact HUD.
1: Our common ground, broadcasting brave, bold, and black. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. Providing sanctuary to black thought, ideas, and struggle for our Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time.
3: you for being here with us tonight on our common ground with our guest james perry who is the executive director of the greater new orleans fair housing action center and what we've been trying to do is to bring you right up to speed on where we have been in the last 45 years and where we are arriving uh, on the fair housing act which is a tool in this country for justice. James, thank you again for being with us, and we do want to remind all of you about TruthWorks Network. Wednesday night, Solar Flyer with Dr. Matthew V. Johnson. Thursday night, Commentaries on the Times Radio with Playfell Benjamin. And on Friday night, yes, he is the granddaddy of politics talk, alpha. And the Alpha show all at 10 p.m. and don't forget to check out and be with uh the talk destination the I declare show Monday through Friday right here at eleven AM on Blog Talk Radio. I'm Janice Graham and if you'd like to join us in this conversation because we're going to start talking about the emerging issues and some of the solutions. Three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two is our number. James, let's talk about I was very disturbed uh back in November. I'm a I'm a a big mm-hmm. Uh, I spend hours reading news on the and commentary on on the internet. I mm-hmm. I subscribe to everything, and one of the things one of the 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 sites that I uh, subscribe to is Pro Publica,
6: yeah.
3: uh, journalism in the public interest. And I was very uh, disturbed by their report on how HUD failed to infor- have has failed to. What, according to them, to enforce the Fair Housing Act? I am sure that you read the report. What was your what was your take on what they were saying about the hopes of uh, uh, strengthening the Civil Rights Department of the Justice uh, Department on Westchester, which is a significant case, and the Obama administration?
5: Uh, you know I, I had the opportunity to talk at length to Nicole Hannah-Jones Jones who is the reporter uh who, who wrote that uh, that article and she certainly put an incredible amount of time into it and and it was incredibly well researched i you know i i i think that the I make a few points one is that um that there's always or at least for a long time been a belief by advocates that um there is a, there are some distinct disadvantages and some distinct advantages from having a civil rights department within the U.S. Department of HUD. Uh, so the, the 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 disadvantage is that on one hand you have a department or a series of departments whose job is to spend money uh, in a way that builds more housing in America, particularly affordable housing. But on the other hand, you have a civil rights department whose job is to ensure that all housing, and especially HUD-funded housing, is being built and, and, and put together in a way that is fair and equitable for all people. And, and so the problem is that it, it, it seems that it's probably somewhat difficult for um, this agency to do both things well um and you know if you, if you have a leader who is a real housing production person over at HUD, then it means that their focus is housing production and you have less emphasis on fair housing. Uh, and we haven't really had yet, I think, a, a secretary of HUD who was a, um, a a true fair housing stalwart. I don't mean to say that, they, that we haven't had people who, who cared about fair housing. They certainly have, but they haven't prioritized it. So one of the, the recommendations that advocates have made uh, in recent years has been that perhaps, Fair housing should be its own agency, separate and uh, and outside of of the U.S. Department of HUD, um, b- because of the fact that it is hard to avoid those kinds of of conflicts. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. but the, the flip side is is that you know um, you know you have you touched on a really important issue here, and um, in, in before we went to break, and that's this question about how HUD spends its federal dollars. And, and, and this idea that it used to be that HUD would say, we will give all deference to local officials. And while HUD certainly does rely on the input of local officials, uh, HUD, this HUD has been um, more committed than ever to taking a stand and saying that the money ha- must be spent in a way that ensures housing opportunities for all people and in a way that affirmatively furthers care housing. And so they have not. Simply taken the word of local officials, and the Westchester case makes uh, makes clear this stance by HUD, uh, where the, the local officials have said we want to do it one way, and HUD has been steadfast in its position that they have to do it not their way but instead do it the right way and so in that circumstance it turns out that having the fair housing department within hud means that it, it makes it easier for hud to regulate the way that it's spending its own money and make sure it's done in a way that affirmatively permanently focused fair housing so i think we're at a really interesting time because what nicole's article certainly uh, points out is that historically hud has done um hasn't done the greatest job at ensuring uh, that, that fair housing is happening at the appropriate pace to ensure civil rights in America. And, 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 and of course, she's critical of the Obama administration, but, but I dare say it may be true that, that we've all of a sudden seen more progress on ensuring equitable spending of funding than we've ever seen under any president. And so it's, it's, I think uh, – so I, I I I don't reach uh, quite the same conclusions as, as Nicole, and I think that um, that we're going to need a little bit of additional time to judge the Obama administration to see if, in fact, their different approach suggests that uh, that perhaps this HUD is, uh, in fact, going farther than any other HUD has ever gone to protect their housing rights.
3: hmm Now – um, we only have a, f- uh, a few more minutes, and I really want to get back because the Fair Housing Act requires that the federal government uh, agencies and the programs and activities that they fund be operated in a manner that affirmatively furthers fair housing. Uh, I think that many people do not, uh, activists, um Normal citizens have Any sense of what that means However it is so critical In your estimation Do you believe That an amendment To the Fair Housing Act Which would define A discriminatory Housing practice to include A violation of the Affirmatively furthering provision Is ever going to happen
5: I think it's going to be Difficult to to uh, To get that done, it's it's not impossible, but certainly difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, the but, but so there's a, a little bit of progress over the past several years that makes it more plausible than ever. It used to be that that, that we could never figure out a way to bring a lawsuit uh, against the municipalities for their failure to affirmatively further for housing. Advocates tried and tried and tried, but could never find success. But so in the Westchester case. Uh, The the attorney, a gentleman named Michael Allen, really did an incredibly unique thing. Instead of bringing the claim under the Federal Fair Housing Act and claiming that they failed to affirmatively further fair housing, he brought the claim under the False Claims Act, which says that a municipality cannot – falsely claim or certify that it is doing something that it's actually not doing. And so you heard me mention earlier that Westchester was falsely certifying that it was, in fact, affirmatively furthering fair housing, but there was clear evidence that they were not and that they knew that they were not doing it. And uh, And so he was able to litigate that case successfully under the False Claims Act. And so we now have an opening that allows fair housing organizations to bring claims of, of a failure to affirmatively further fair housing against cities and states. And okay. and, and so that litigation hook is what makes, um, I think, a new realm of activity possible. So, so HUD didn't just kind of on its own jump into Westchester and start fighting. It jumped in after Michael Allen and those folks brought the, the Affirmatively Furthering lawsuit because HUD didn't that there not realize uh, that they had a legal leg to stand on. And so it's after that case that HUD takes on cases in Galveston, takes on cases in Louisiana. They, I think they have some cases in the Midwest. They had at least 10 or 15 cases. And, and what I've heard is that there are more cases in the pipeline um, dealing with this Affirmatively Furthering issue. And so now that there's a reg- a a litigation hook i I do think that it's possible that congress would consider um uh strengthening the fair housing act look there are so many things not just in fair housing but across the board in civil rights that need to happen federally that um one of the most important messages that your listeners can hear in my opinion is that these midterm elections coming up uh in uh in the next uh, uh year and a half are incredibly important and in how and whether or not Democrats are able to retake uh, uh, the House of Representatives and then also whether or not we can get a stronger majority in the Senate is going to be decisive as to whether or not we can get these kinds of changes. Because quite frankly, if that can happen, then it's completely plausible that you get a new Fair Housing Act that protects uh, people from discrimination based on their sexual orientation, based on their source of income, based on their transgender status, and also um, um, makes it illegal to fail to affirmatively further fair housing. But I Tell you what, if, we, if, the, if black voters don't turn out uh, in the midterm election, which is, of course, exactly what happened in 2010, then, then our problems are going to be incredibly um, – they're just going to grow. It's going to get worse and worse and more and more difficult to get anything done. Uh, elections have serious consequences, and we can ensure through strong turnout in the midterm elections that, that this next set of elections has uh, good consequences for communities of color.
3: Well, we certainly thank you, James Perry, for the work that you do, for the voice that you lend nationally uh, to these issues. Um, I mean, I every chance I get, I talk about uh, uh, the Fair Housing Act and housing discrimination and the import that it has on the general life of Americans in this country, and I think until we remove the immunity uh, that states and local governments have hidden be, beyond uh, behind uh we're not going to get very much uh, uh traffic going in regard to con- uh uh relief uh for, from some of these issues and the sovereign immunity uh has to place government on the same footing as a private party that discriminates and until sure. we do that and we found that in, in Title Seven Enforcement, uh, we're we're really going to be just biding our time on individual lawsuits one right after the other. But yeah. thank you so very much for the work you do. Uh yeah. we hope to have you back again to to talk more specifically about um the impact. I mean, my my discussion with the with the uh, civil rights attorney Alexander Polakoff, really got me going. It was I it was see. the right thing, <laughs> right place, and right thing yeah, for me to that. do because because we have to understand that aside from losing to death, a child yeah. uh, or uh, a spouse are losing a job losing housing and not having housing opportunities happens to be the third most stressful situation that any human being finds. James Perry, you take care of yourself. You know, by the way, <laughs> it just occurred to me, you were not married the last time you were at our stop. common ground. Well, Congratulations well, actually, to
5: well, you. Well, well, thank you very much and what I was And the
3: wonderful just... work that Melissa Harris Perry is doing on MSNBC. Well, I couldn't what be I, prouder.
5: Well, thank you very much. Now, well, what I was going to say in my in my uh, good evening to you was that she's asleep now. But when I told her that I had to stay up to to do your show, she said to send her love to you and to, to tell you hello. And it's been a long time since you guys had a chance to talk.
3: Yes, absolutely. and 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 and, and that growing, budding young woman in your household. <laughs> she is she is just glowing, and uh, I I just can't express to you uh, in our community how proud we are of the voice that the Harris household brings to the issue of justice in America. And thank you so very much.
5: Thank you. Have a great
3: evening. You too. Thank you. Look forward to having James Perry back. Thanks to all of you who have joined us tonight at Our Common Ground. We hope that you will join us next Saturday night, an evening with Dr. Renoko Rashidi, his life and his work, and I couldn't be more pleased to have him. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you.
6: Get out, you
0: We are living in a nation based with the possibility of war on multiple mental and physical levels. We got black wars against the police, we still got crack wars in the streets, unemployment at its peak, overcrowded cells in present day hell, wars of Jews against Muslims over whether a created state is wars over Western with Saddam, American politicians arguing over the difference between smart and dirty bombs, instead of smart children in dirty schools, I feel like it's me against the world and I'm starting to get ill without even thinking of Kim Jong, though North Korea does have the world turning up on its accents right now. With these signs of the time in mind, I wake up every day asking myself one question, and it takes me no less than 24 agonizing hours to answer. Am I gonna die today? I said, am I gonna die today? I don't even bother watching my back anymore because I might get killed from the side today. Or maybe they get me in nuclear with bombs dropping from the sky today. Or maybe some religious fanatic is gonna blow my behind up in a train station after deciding he wants to get close to the paradise today. Hell, I gotta wonder if some insane and depressed pilot whose wife just cheated on him and ran away with the kids is gonna fly today. Right into the 13th floor of my building where I just called my wife to tell her I gotta rise and pay. Or am I gonna get hit on some DWB while driving on I-95 today? Or maybe some crooked cop's gonna decide that some no-good niggas' mom's gotta cry today? All this while wondering if Bush is gonna play chess of our lives today? Why today? Instead of thinking about all that today, I think I'm just going to lose myself in the movement, the moment I own it, because it might be time to go. It only takes one shot for cops to release my soul, because our community stalk my by five old soul. So I decided that I'm going to fight today, because there's always just enough time left to be right today.
3: Thank you for joining us on Our Common Ground, as we transfer truth to power, one broadcast. At a time. I'm Janice Graham. Next week, Saturday, 10 p.m., an evening with Dr. Rinoco Rashidi, his life and his work.
0: I'll be listening for you. I don't know about y'all, but I'm going to fight and never give in. So if I die before I lay my head to sleep today, I just pray to God my soul's achieved
6: to today. Oh, visionian.